The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be there with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Well, thanks for being here with us this evening. Thanks for choosing to spend your Easter with us. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I get the privilege of being pastor here uh, at Citizens Church. If you are new, I uh, especially want to welcome you, what you have stumbled your way into or been dragged into or decided to come to, whichever one of those applies, uh, is a little year and a half old or so church plant called Citizens Church seeking to be a Jesus-centered family on mission with him here on the east side of Charlotte. And we're super glad that you've decided to join with us. If you'd like to know more information about following Jesus or who we are as a church or how you can get connected, the easiest way to do that is to fill out that little blue connect card in your bulletin. You can drop that off in the lobby to one of our volunteers on your way over to the party that I hope you'll join us for afterward. A quick word of note, adults, there's lots of eggs in the yard. They are easy to find. They are not for you. Okay? It's just candy. If you need some candy, I will bring you some, okay? Just kidding. Hey, grab a Bible, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, we're going to eventually get to Revelation 21, what Jordan just read for us, but it's going to take us just a little bit, just a few minutes to get there. I want to start in 1 Corinthians 15, and I think it'll make sense for you in a minute. If you need a Bible, there should be some on the pews. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. You can take that home uh, with you. Let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll see what the Lord has for us on Resurrection Sunday. God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you that as followers of you, we know the reality is that every Sunday is a Resurrection Sunday. We're grateful for today, for this day that the church has set aside to mark and remember in particular the empty tomb. The cross was not the end of the story. The grave could not hold you, Jesus, but you got up. You defeated Satan's sin and death, and now you rule and reign forever. God, so I pray wherever folks are entering in from, whether they've been following you for a long time, whether this is their first experience in a church or anywhere in between, Lord, I pray that you would speak in power, you would speak in boldness, you would speak in might, God, that you would fulfill the promise that your word doesn't return void. And so as we think about your word, as we ponder your word, as we think about you and who you are and your goodness and the hope on offer to us in the gospel, Lord, I pray that you will change our hearts. You will call us to yourself. Lord, we love you. Pray all these things in Christ's name. And all God's people said. Amen. <clears throat> Near the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, which if you can believe it, is over two years ago now, uh, a man by the name of Adam Robinson, who's this kind of genius uh, educator and author and chess master on the side, gave this lecture where he talked about how what he thought the world was about to enter into based on how he read the COVID situation was nothing short of a spiritual crisis. 
And in the talk, he kind of traces back kind of the breakdown of society. He talks about the polarization of the political left and the political right. He talks about this kind of mob mentality of social media replacing the public square, the overwhelming statistics behind kind of the dire situation of mental health right now. And he said, hey, this global pandemic, if it turns out to be that, is going to be the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. And his argument was that the reason why this was going to happen and why we we're going to reach this kind of crisis moment in the world is that we no longer had anything to stabilize ourselves. He says what we've been taught kind of in this moment in our society is to break things down without a common narrative or a common, common unifying belief system in which we can actually build something on top of what we've broken. And his diagnosis is really interesting. He's not, a, he's not a Christian, not a believer, but he says near the end, he says, in order for us to move forward in hope as a society, we need or the world needs a better story. He says, in order for us to collectively move forward, we need a better story. Now, regardless of whether or not you agree with how dire he says the situation was or is, we as a church have been arguing much of the same over the past few weeks. We've been trying to do as a church is look at the better story on offer to us in the world. That is the story of God. What we have argued is not just the better story for how to live life both now and forever, but also the one true story, the story by which we can place our individual stories into to make sense of our past and our present in the future. We said, in case you weren't here, that the story of God has four parts or four acts, that part one was creation where the kingdom of God begins, that God created all things out of nothing. He places the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, into a garden called Eden, and he calls them to bear his image, to join him in his work in ruling and reigning and exercising dominion over the earth under his authority and in deep intimacy with him. While they're there in the garden, he gives them one command, one thing they cannot do. He says, don't eat from this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you've read the story, you know that they rebel. They eat from the tree, and that leads to Act 2, which is called the fall, where the kingdom rebels against the king. The Bible teaches that because of the sin of Adam and Eve, when they eat from the tree, sin, not as a concept but as a reality, enters the world. And it makes all of us who were born as humans guilty before God and corrupted in our nature. That we are not by default good or even sort of okay or kind of on the line between good and bad. We are born sinful, separated from God and turned towards ourselves. Now, we also said on Good Friday that God does not leave us in that state. It leads to Act 3, redemption. The king lives and dies for his kingdom. Christ Jesus, the Son of God, fully God, also becomes fully man, and he enters into human history, lives the perfect, free life, of, life free of sin that you and I cannot live, and yet he goes to the cross, and he's betrayed, and he's beaten, and he's mocked, and he's abused physically, emotionally, and he dies for us in our sin, so that we can have relationship with God forever by trusting in Jesus and being washed clean and forgiven and made new. And that is where we left the story on Good Friday. Jesus on the cross, Savior of the world, died for sin and sinners. And that is the climax of the story of God. That is the, the pinnacle moment, the, the culmination of thousands of years of promises and prophecies about a coming Messiah and a coming Savior reach their peak moment right in the cross of Christ. As one 1800s British theologian said, the cross is the center of the world's history. 
But here's the deal. Although the cross is the pinnacle of the story, the cross is not the end of the story. The declaration of Christians for thousands of years has not simply been, Christ has died, period. True, he has. But there's more that has happened, and there's more that will happen. That's what I want to talk about for a few minutes tonight. Act four in the story, consummation, completion, resolution, whatever you want to call it. The kingdom is forever. Let's talk about that more that the Bible says has happened and will happen after the cross. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to start in verse 1. This is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at a time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's the brother of Jesus, who we studied earlier this spring, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul's writing this letter, and he says, hey, near the end of it, let me remind you of what is first importance. Let me remind you of the essence of our Christian faith, that Christ has died, that Christ was buried, that Christ rose again, and that Christ appeared. And one of the reasons we as Christians are so confident that we can celebrate a resurrection today on Easter Sunday, the fact that Jesus did actually rise from the dead, is what Paul says here in this passage, how many people he appeared to. He says he appeared to 500 at one time. Then he has that line where he says, most of whom are still alive, a.k.a. if you want to ask him if that actually happened, you feel free to check the reports. We think as we read the story of the New Testament that something had to have happened, right? Because if you look at Good Friday, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, are not really about Jesus in that moment. They're denying him. Hey, do you know you were with him? No, I wasn't. Peter three times. They're rejecting him. They're running away from him. One of them betrays him. But then just a short time after Good Friday, 11 of the 12 besides Judas turn from being scared, denying they know him, on the run, in hiding, to powerfully preaching and proclaiming the good news. So much so that they're willing to die for it. Peter, who's Cephas in this passage, is crucified upside down. Paul is beheaded. Thomas is killed by spears. Matthew is staked to the ground. It's like, take your pick. Which one do you want? They go from fearful and afraid and hiding to being willing to die. Why? Because they have seen Jesus. And he's risen. He's resurrected. Because Christ rose from the dead, these men begin living out of a different story with a different hope. Keep going. Skip down to verse 12. Paul continues. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? All right, so apparently there were some in the church at Corinth who were saying, hey, there's no resurrection. Like maybe at best some like ethereal spirit world where we'll go to, but no bodily resurrection. Like when you die, your body's done for, that's it. And Paul says, if that's true, then we don't have a bodily resurrection of Christ. And he continues that that's a problem. Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ 
whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That's the Bible's way of talking about those who have died have perished. If we in Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here's Paul's point. Without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, everything in Christianity falls apart. Without Easter Sunday, everything in our faith falls apart. I mean, just look at the list. I'll give them to you real quick. He says, without the resurrection, the gospel is a myth. Everything we proclaim, everything we talk about, everything we hold to, everything we're about as a church is a myth. Didn't actually happen. Preaching is useless, which means I'm out of a job. Somebody want to offer me a job? That'd be great. Our faith is in vain. It's pointless. Christians, we're misrepresenting God because we're saying that his son came and died for the sins of the world. So we're misrepresenting the creator God. Humanity is still in our sins. Those who have died are lost. They're without hope. And Christians, most of all, are to be pitied. What we're doing tonight, they should pity us for. See, if we don't have the resurrection, we have nothing. And so the cross cannot be the end of the story. Because what we cling to as followers of Jesus is this message called the gospel, right? We saw it there in verse 1. He says, the gospel I preach to you. And the gospel at its most basic meaning is just this, good news. Gospel just means good news. In fact, before it was a religious term, in the ancient world it was actually a political term. And what they would say when they took the gospel somewhere is they would send a messenger ahead to a city or to a town, and his role was to proclaim the gospel. And the gospel usually sounded something like, hey, the king is coming and he has won. So before Christians took it as their kind of declaration, it was used throughout the ancient world to declare the king is coming and he has won. You see, if Christ stays dead, if the story ends with a crucifixion, there can be no such declaration for us as followers of Jesus. If the tomb is still full, we cannot say Christ has won. So absolutely essential to our Christian gospel, to the good news we believe as followers of Christ, why we make such a big deal out of today is because it's everything to our faith. Death could not hold him. He is the promised Messiah. He has won the victory. So central to our gospel message, if you're like, what are you about as Christians? Central to everything we believe is that Christ is not dead but he's risen. This is the gospel. This is the good news. But here's what I want to show you tonight. The resurrection is not just good news of the past. The resurrection is not just good news, something to look back on and celebrate. The resurrection of Jesus also means there's something to look forward to. This is theologian N.T. Wright. He says it this way. He says, what good news regularly does then is to put a new event into an old story point to a wonderful future hitherto out of reach and so introduce a new period in which instead of living a hopeless life people are now waiting with excitement for what they know is on the way the christian good news is supposed to be this kind of thing the gospel of jesus christ comes as news within a larger story and it points to a wonderful new future that means the resurrection is not just a past reality we cling to It's a future promise we long for. And here's why I say that. Verse 20, Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
And so he says, okay, if Christ hasn't been raised, then we have no hope. We as Christians should be pitied. We should not do this every Sunday. We should go instead have dinner at a reasonable time like 5 o'clock, which is when I eat. This is pointless. This preaching is in vain. What's the point? There is no point. And he says, but if he did, and we believe he did, then Paul says he is the first fruits. And here's what it means by the first fruits. So a few weeks ago, Lindsay and I bought a uh, propane fire pit, and it's awesome. You just like hook it up to propane, turn it on, press a button, and there's like a fire pit in my backyard. That's tax refunds at work. It's great. Uh, and so we got this fire pit, and we've spent most of the evenings over the past few weeks just sitting out there at night, talking, watching Harper kind of play on her playset. It's really as magical as it sounds. And a few days ago, we were sitting outside, and our house uh, kind of backs up to like just this tiny little woods in Charlotte. So it's not like Waxhaw Woods. It's just like Charlotte Woods. And uh, we were about looking at it and we both had kind of this epiphany moment at the same time where we looked at each other and we said when did the trees get leaves again like it was just kind of overnight right it just kind of blinked and you woke up one morning and winter is gone and spring is here and I'm still wearing jackets all right this is just how it goes but I don't know if you noticed that right if you're driving around Charlotte as you've seen like the flowers are starting to bloom you're starting to sneeze a lot more you're starting to see this evidence of first fruits and here's what first fruits is. First fruits are the first sign of life that give evidence that more life is coming. That's what a first fruit is. It's the first crop out of the ground. It's the first fruit of the harvest saying, hey, I'm here. Life is springing forth. And there's good news because there's more life to come after me. And that's what Paul says Jesus' resurrection is. It's the first fruit. Life has broken in. Where there was death, now there's life. Where there was death, now there's resurrection. But it's also evidence that more life is coming. There is more resurrection on the way. Look at verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So remember, in the fall, Adam, because of his sin, all of humanity was put under the curse of sin. We're guilty before God. We've inherited his corruption. But Paul says, just like sin and death came through one man, Adam, so will life come through the one God-man, Jesus Christ. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who notice belong to Christ. Here's Paul's big point. This is the gospel. Christ has died and Christ has risen. And if Christ didn't rise, then we're all hopeless and death is the end. But if Christ rose from the grave, then all who belong to him, who trust in him, who put our faith in him, who turn from our sin and put our hope in him as Savior and Lord will also rise from the dead as well. Because Easter is not just about Christ's resurrection. It's also about our resurrection. It's about the promise that one day what happened to Jesus will happen to all who belong to him. Or if I can put it this way, resurrection is not just a past reality we celebrate. It is a future reality we will experience. Death is not the end of the story. It wasn't for Christ, and it's not for those who belong to him. There's life after death. This is where the whole story is leading. We're just as Christ got up out of the grave, Paul says, so will all of us who follow him. We too will experience a bodily resurrection. Our bodies will be made new. They'll be made right, or to use the language of the New Testament, we'll be glorified. And we who belong to Jesus will be with him forever. If our hope as Christians is only for this life, then we're to be pitied, but it's not. Because Christ rose, we will rise with him. But it gets even better than that. It's even better than just the resurrection of all who belong to him. Verse 24. Then comes the end. 
In Greek, that word end is the word telos. It's like the culmination, the, the point where it's all been leading to, the future completion where the whole thing has been moving towards from the start. Then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus is not at peace with death. Jesus is not cordial with death. Jesus is not uh, as religious as we are with death, where he's like, yeah, but we, no, Jesus is going to defeat death. Jesus is at war with death. Death is the enemy. And he says the last enemy to be defeated, good news for us, is death. Here's what all this means, verses 24 through 26. It means Jesus is not only going to resurrect all who trust in him, he's also going to resurrect the world. He's going to make us new, and he's going to make his creation new. He's not going to abandon what he created, right? He started it. He spoke it into existence. He's not going to be like, oh, I know I kept trying for thousands of years, but uh, whatever. No, he's going to bring it back to its original design and then some, and then even more beautiful. God's going to remake the world as he ushers in his forever kingdom, and we will be with God into eternity. Now, I don't know what your church background is or if you grew up in church or not in church, but at least when I... I uh, was growing up, I grew up in church, and my picture, like when somebody talked to me about like resurrection with Jesus, eternity with him, I thought of this place called heaven. And heaven to me, I don't know if like I was taught this or if I just believed it as a kid, uh, really for a while into teenage years too, is heaven was like this ethereal place where we were all kind of spirits and we floated around on clouds and it was like half boring church service where we sang a bunch to God and half like do whatever you want with your favorite characters of the Bible, right? Which for me is like, I'm going to play golf with Moses and Paul and I'm going to only shoot birdies and eagles. Like that's just how it's going to go for me. I remember in particular, this is like thick 1990s youth subculture Christianity. Uh, there was this song by a band called Audio Adrenaline called Big House. <laughs> and thanks. By the, the laughter, you guys also experienced this. I'm sorry. Um, and the chorus said, it's a big, it's not heaven, obviously a big house. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of room, a uh, big, big table with lots and lots of food, uh, a big, big yard where we can play football, a big, big house. It's my father's house. And that's just not the picture that we get in the Bible. That's just not, that's just not what the Bible says. And, and I think it's important to know that's not what the Bible says, because I think if you look at the world around us, we need a deeper hope. Right? Like, hey, I know there's been a global pandemic for two years, and I know that there's a bunch of conflict going on in Europe, and I know that it seems like the inflation's going through the roof and you can't afford anything. Uh, I know also that it feels like you're heartbroken and the life's not turning out how you want, and you're experiencing life and, or loss and death and betrayal, and you're hurting physically, emotionally, spiritually, fill in the blank. Hey, but good news for you, one day you're going to play football in heaven. <laughs> we need a deeper hope. We need a more beautiful hope. And the good news for us is the Bible actually gives us a more beautiful hope. Let's go to Revelation 21. This is the actual picture of what Jordan read for us at the beginning. This is the actual picture of what's to come. Christ as a king entering into, back into this world, reigning and ruling, now leaves the right hand of God, coming with trumpets and chariots and horses. It's just this giant triumphal procession. And this is what we read is going to happen. Revelation 21. This is the picture the scriptures give us. Then, John writes, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So there's a recreating taking place, right? 
There's a new heaven and a new earth, verse 1 says. The earth passes away, or to use the language of 2 Peter, it's not discarded or thrown in the trash. It's refined like fire. It too will have a resurrection. God's not abandoning his creation. He's going to redeem it, refine it, make it new. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So no floating on the clouds in an ethereal state. It's a city. There's material. Elsewhere in Revelation, we read about streets and bridges and and vegetation and buildings and rivers and trees. The the tree of life is there. It's this kind of scene for us that it's like the Garden of Eden, but even better, it's a garden-like city. It's a beautiful material future embodied. There's this sense in which it's a, a better, more beautiful, more perfect, more complete version of the garden, God's original design. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And so it says that they will be his people. The word here is actually plural. It's peoples. It's this beautiful affirmation of God's design for multi-ethnicity, where the peoples from every tribe, tongue, language, nation, background will gather around the throne and worship him together. Second, intimacy is restored between God and man, and God himself will dwell with them back to how it was meant to, where he would walk in the cool of the garden with Adam and Eve. God's returning back to this intimacy where sin broke it. Now it's going to be restored again. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, those things that used to haunt us, those things that used to trouble us, that used to terrorize us, they have passed away. Death, mourning, crying, pain, tears are done. And and I don't know if you're like me, this is hard to imagine. Right? It's hard to imagine a world where there's no more wailing of parents grieving over the loss of their child. It's hard to imagine a world where there's no more this country invading that country, this person inflicting violence against this person. It's hard to imagine a world where there's no more bad CT scans, no more let's do a biopsy, no more do I need to get on medication. It's hard to imagine a world where there's no more grieving over broken relationships and friendships, what was said to you or about you, no more replaying the trauma, no more reliving the abuse, no more living in the heartache, no more living in fear, crushed by anxiety, wrecked with depression, living in loneliness, isolation, and abandonment. And I want you to notice Christ himself wipes away every tear. I don't know what your picture of Jesus is, but I hope it includes a savior who bends down to wipe the tears. Because that's the promise. Christ himself wipes the tears. Verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. In other words, this is a guarantee. This is going to happen. And that's what we remember this Easter. This is our hope that, yes, Christ has died. And yes, Christ has risen. But it gets even better. Christ will come again. That's the good news that we hope for and long for and celebrate and root ourselves in. That this answer to this question, where is it all headed? Here's where it's headed. Fact, it's going to happen. A glorious future of perfection in the presence and kingdom of God. That's what we long for on Easter. That's what we root ourselves in on Easter. That our hope for today is not just we look back at an empty tomb and say, hey, that was cool. Remember Jesus rose from the grave. But we look forward and say, because he rose, we will rise with him. And he will come back. 
and he will set up his new heaven and new earth. This is the words of A.W. Tozer. He says it this way. He says, the crux of the whole matter is this. Our wonderful created world will be restored to its rightful owner. The God who has promised a better world, notice this, is the God who cannot lie. He will shake loose Satan's hold on this world and its society and systems. Our Heavenly Father will put this world into the hands that were once nailed to a cross for proud and alienated sinners. I love this line. It is a fact. Jesus Christ is returning to earth. Is this a maybe? No. Is this like a potentially? No. Is this like one of the options that we could? No. It's a fact. Jesus Christ is returning to earth. It's a sure thing. Tomorrow is not a sure thing. Next week is not a sure thing. Next month, next year is not a sure thing. Eternity for all who belong to Christ, sure thing. Fact. So the question for all of us, and this is where I want to end, the question for all of us is this, where will you put your hope this Easter? Where will you put your hope? Where will you root yourself in? What story are you living in? What future story, what future ending, what future consummation holds your hope? Is it the perfect spouse? The perfect kids? Perfect job? More money? Is it science? Is it progress? Is it society? Is it politics and government? What are you hoping will hold your future? Where are you hoping this all leads? What do you use to make sense of the chaos of the world? When you hurt, when life feels fragile, when death is an in-your-face reality, what holds your hope? Let me invite you that you need a better story, that all of us need a better story. And that's the hope of Easter. That's the hope of the resurrection, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And so the invitation for you, and the question for you is, will you belong to him? Paul's very clear. The Bible is very clear. All who belong to Christ. Will you belong to him? Maybe for the first time, will you put your faith in Jesus? Will you turn from your sin, trust in him, plead that he is Lord and Savior and King so you can have life with him forever? Maybe you've been following Jesus for a while, and it's an invitation back to a lot of what we talked about on Friday, to root your hope here, that Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ will come again. That even if you're like, I've been following Jesus for 20 years, that's great. Where's your hope? In the midst of the ups and downs of life, root your hope back in the promise. This is the hope of Easter, that Christ is not dead. Why do you search for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the good news of the resurrection. God, thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for his life. And we we do thank you for his death. We think that he came and he died. God, without death, there's no payment for sins. There's no absolution of wrath. There's no penalty being satisfied. Lord, but thank you that he didn't stay dead. And three days later, on the morning of the first day of the week, Mary and Peter and John, they run to the tomb and they find it empty. And thank you for this beautiful question that breathes nothing but hope and life into our world and into our lives. Why do you search for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And we know and we want to root ourselves in the hope and the reality that because Christ is risen from the dead, because death wasn't the end of his story, because he resurrected from the grave, that all who belong to him will also rise again. 
that we'll spend forever with him in a new heavens and a new earth, this glorious return back to a better version of your original design, back into your presence, back into the fullness of your kingdom, back into intimacy with you where we belonged to start. And so I pray that there's folks in the room who, who are new to you, new to church, new to Christianity, unsure about the whole thing. Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage to ask the hard questions, to wrestle with the things of you, to wrestle with where their hope is. God, I pray that you would show all of us in the room where the false places we put our hope, what stories we want to live in, what stories we want to lay out for ourselves, what we want to say we believe is coming. And so that's where our hope lies. Lord, I pray that nothing else but the good news of Jesus will be our hope. Christ has died, and that Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. Root us in that hope, Lord. We need you. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.